And where are the best? Well, not in politics, that's for sure. Times have changed, Germanus. Once politics was the only way our young men could climb out of the slums. Let us fight for a world of reason. A world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. I mean, if I don't know what you're up to, and if I, if I don't holler and scream when I think you're doing it wrong, and if I just mind my own business and don't vote or care, then I just get what I deserve. In the name of democracy, let us all unite! The next question is this. Now, we're an anti-war party, meaning that we don't go ahead and get aggressive. In fact, our whole defense department was set up just to be that, a defense department. But we still have a Pentagon budget. So we have, we have defense in this country. What is your philosophy as far as being, what's the best way to handle the defense budget, and what specifically should the Pentagon, the military, what should that consist of, what should that encompass as far as protecting our country? Okay. So for, for me, uh, I wouldn't change a thing for the first two years of my presidency. I have an idea of um, uh, getting people uh, education in the United States. One thing I found out when I traveled around is there are a lot of people who have uh, good hearts, but uh, they're trapped in their, their world and they can't get out. And I think one of the biggest issues that's trapping them is their education level and their experience in life. And uh, so I want to upscale or um, recycle or upcycle, upcycle, thank you, uh, the uh, military. I, I, we do need a defensive military for sure, but I want to change it around and make it a peace uh, uh, force where uh, we will uh, maybe take some lessons also from the Peace Corps. My, one of my thoughts was to bring them into the military themselves so that they can really guide us on peace efforts and also um, so have a, a division, maybe go into four different areas. So one would be uh, defense uh, military. One would be uh, to train like nursing and um, hospital care. One would be, and that would also include um, mother and parent care, and then also uh, elderly care. And then also agriculture. Somebody along my trail said, oh, you know, maybe we don't want to do any of that sort of stuff, but agriculture would be interesting. And then infrastructure rebuilding and disaster relief. So I want to spend the budgets that we have already on that. Bring people in, have, I know this might be a really bad word, but have a draft, actually. And bring people in from the age of 18 to 35, where they have to come in and do some training. And they get to learn new skills. And then ultimately, they will get to learn and meet people from around the country to promote unity. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, so I'll continue that another time, but uh, anyways, my time's up, thanks. If we're going to save this planet, we will have to save this planet by working and concentrating on peace. And so that's what our campaign focuses on. It isn't a new idea from us, this idea of the Department of Peace. Others have raised this, 
But we are the campaign that is championing in this election in particular because we believe that more than simply slashing the military, we need to actively build a more peaceful world. And what does that mean? Some will say the State Department engages in diplomacy towards peaceful effort. That's not what we've seen. We've seen the State Department aid the effort toward warmongering and aid the capitalist abuses of this country in its air quotes diplomacy. We need to improve global quality of life. We need to get in there and do the kinds of things that right now NGOs are doing because governments, capitalist governments, have failed us as a human race. We need to close all of those bases all across the country, that do, all across the world, that do not need to exist, that are simply for the sake of this country's colonialism and imperialism. And we need to, nonetheless, of course, take care of our country's veterans, many who have been abused by the military and industrial complex and are suffering various kinds of illnesses. Now, I need to mention this as well. If we're going to build peace, then we also need a world where there is a space and a comfortable one for truth. And we have seen that those who speak the truth about the wars happening across this planet are being punished and even tortured, such as Julian Assange. We need protections for whistleblowers. That, too, is a part of building peace. And we need to protect media diversity to ensure that information about the imperialist interventions abroad in this country and other countries that information gets out so that we can protect the world from the effects of, of imperialist war and warmongering. Now, towards that end, I want to point out an example of this. In regards to the conflict in Syria, there was an attempt to publish in a major journal an article indicating that some of the assumptions about the sarin gas bomb actually weren't bearing out in computer modeling that indicated it was a simple artillery crater. That was repressed. The journal that was going to publish it refused to publish it. And you can barely hear about it in terms of media coverage that that happened. We need to build a country, a planet, where a democratization of ideas allows people to judge for themselves whether or not the kind of conflicts that people are engaging in are in any way, shape, or form allowable, productive, or simply violations of international law and human rights that must be stopped. Like, we're not, 
we're not the teachers of peace. Like we need a, a transformation. So of the U.S. a decolonization, have a, a, a different government here. That's that's for that's for peace and starts with with peace at home and doing the right thing here and collaborating with people around the world instead of trying to control them. Uh, the leading indicator of violence in all communities is economic inequality. And I would say, based on my own experience, about 80% of the people who serve in the military today did not have economic or educational opportunities in their communities, and that's why they have joined the military, for those opportunities that were not able to, or not presented to them in their communities. I. Part of my renewable infrastructure investment program is to divest the money from the war machine and investing it back into those communities, providing educational employment and economic opportunities for the communities as well as the people who live in those communities. Um, I, I, as I said, that you know, if we have wind, water, or uh, sunlight anywhere, we can generate electricity. I'm talking about small local infrastructure for electricity. I don't know how many of you guys remember, but a few years ago when the power went out in Cleveland, New York City was without electricity for about two or three days. If we look at one of the greatest threats to the stability of our nation, it's because we don't have a strong electrical grid infrastructure. By taking this money that we're spending on endless wars and um, investing it back into communities to generate electricity. We're not only creating wealth for that community, but we're also creating those jobs that are so sorely needed in those communities. Gotcha. Uh, and honestly, uh, the only reason why we have uh, such an easy ability to uh, create war now is because we have a standing military. We didn't have a standing military 100 years ago. It's only because that the military-industrial complex, as so coined by uh, Dwight Eisenhower, got its fingers into our country and into our democracy, had us have a standing army so that we can go and conquer and, and have these wars for regime change. I'm calling for a complete end to that. Well, I've been calling from the beginning of this campaign for a 75% cut in the Pentagon budget and our military spending. And I'll be frank with you, that number is arbitrary. I know the U.S. cut 75% of military spending when it demobilized from World War II. So it can be done. And they had the GI Bill, so there was a just transition. Um, now, what that exact number should be back in the 80s when we were fighting for the nuclear freeze and getting the intermediate range missiles out of Europe, we had peace conversion plans with numbers of what force structures to reduce and what it would cost. People like Randall Forsberg, Ron Delms from the House Armed Services Committee, and others. In fact, there was one through the Mobilization for Survival said, for what I advocate is home-based defense, it would take 3% of the current military budget at that time. And our military budget today is even bigger than it was back in the 80s under the Reagan Cold War. I mean, that's how damn crazy this military budget's going. But what I really want to talk about, I think the most important thing is, we're in a new nuclear arms race. The bulletin of the atomic scientists just moved their clock 100 seconds to midnight, closest it's ever been. We got strategic nukes, we're modernizing our nuclear forces. They're six times faster than the old ones. You can't launch all morning now. You launch when you think the other guy might launch. 
And then we put tactical nukes in the conventional structures. In this crisis which we just had with Iran, we had new tactical nukes on our warships. And if Trump had got out on the wrong side of the bed that morning, he might have nuked Iran. So we're right on the edge. There was a treaty adopted, the text of which 122 countries adopted two years ago in July 2017 for the prohibition of nuclear weapons. The International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons got the Nobel Peace Prize for that. And hardly anybody in this country even knows that. Our media don't talk about it. None of the major party presidential candidates talk about it. And the atomic scientists are telling we're right on the precipice between climate change and nuclear weapons. So what I'm saying Greens should do, we should call, first of all, pledge no first use. We're not going to use them first. Secondly, we're going to get down to a minimum credible deterrent, and on the basis of those tension-reducing initiatives, go to the nuclear powers who weren't part of this new treaty and say, we've got to get rid of all the nukes. Let's mutually disarm, complete nuclear weapons disarmament. must be framed through an ecological economic model that treats the economy as a subset of the Earth's biodynamic system. Policy goals and benchmarks must be measured by zero waste, 100% organic. We, our campaign is developing a 15 to 30 year benchmark to monitor and evaluate policies budgetary policies for everybody through an ecological lens and framework. That's why it's important to understand ecological economics because it's based on the Earth's biodynamic system. So that is the philosophy. That was the question I heard, but I didn't hear anybody answer that. So I think it's really important that you understand that this philosophy would change our entire way a country looks. So we can get to America at 300. Ecological economics. Help me, y'all. Ecological economics. That's the, that's the key. Three real people start. Next question. Uh, boycott, divest, sanction. Next question. What's your position on it? And I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story because part of what this campaign is about is connecting with people and understanding their stories, their experiences, and their struggles. Uh, there was a time not too long ago I was the rabbi of the congregation in Youngstown, Ohio. And it was an interesting and unique position to be in, particularly being a rabbi of this, this formerly conservative movement congregation, being a black Jew, an openly gay man. You know, I had belonged to that congregation before that point, and I really felt a sense of personal welcome, which you should feel in any kind of congregation or social group that you belong to. I felt comfortable. And that was until I voiced my opposition to what's happening to people who are being made to feel not only uncomfortable, but subjected to abuses and even murder in Palestine at the hands of colonialism. That's what's happening. And I was asked very directly from Cleveland.com what my feelings were about that, and I said that the treatment of Palestinians is an absolutely atrocious, and we should not be funding the human rights abuses happening in Palestine. Not one dime, not one cent. It was a human-centered focus, and as a person who represented a religious community, you would think there would be understanding for that. Unfortunately, there wasn't. 
And unfortunately, I expected that there would not be. I put my job and my livelihood on the line. And one year later, I am still trying to find a replacement for the position that was taken out from underneath me due to my advocacy for human rights. And I do not regret it one bit because it isn't even a fraction of what Palestinians are experiencing where they are shooting at children. They are snipers shooting at persons with disabilities, at the press. It is unconscionable, it is disgusting. We must support the Palestinian people's struggle. We must support BDS as a nonviolent means of addressing the human rights abuses on the part of Israel. And we must support as a party possible a one-state solution because there are people who have had their, their human rights stripped from them, their, their ability to live in their own land stripped from them, the basic sense of having a basic human quality of life and dignity taken from them. And we are, if, if nothing else is green, we have to stand for the those people who are experiencing that kind of unconscionable oppression. And I do, even if it means losing my livelihood and my own community connection. Um, okay, well, I'm for a, a total boycott of the Zionist entity of so-called Israel. I'm, I'm for the U.S. not funding them one, one penny for anything, not, not just cutting military aid to them, or not just like cutting aid until, until they give the Palestinians some equal rights in part of Palestine. I'm, I'm for totally decolonizing the Middle East, um, restoring um, Arab sovereignty over, over all of Palestine and all of the Middle East, and um, Israel like has no right right to exist. That like um, colonial <coughs> nationalism is like not legitimate. I mean, the, the U.S. has no right to exist. We have our nationalism in the United States is is destructive, and the, the same the same goes for for Israel. And um, the the Zionist entity has also um, attacked all the neighboring countries and convinced the United States to attack the neighboring countries. This whole the war against Syria is instigated by by Zionists. The um, the war and threats against Iran is instigated by Zionists. The wars against Iraq and Afghanistan were instigated by Zionists. The war against Libya, the war against Sudan, and splitting Sudan into two countries. This this war in Yemen, the <laughs> um, the war against Lebanon. It's all it's all. Part of the reason this is happening is because the U.S. is supporting Zionism in Palestine, and we need to stop it. And I, I would point out that um, that Dario like still retains his Israeli citizenship. Um, you know, I I'm wrong to to retain my U.S. citizenship too. Like you can criticize all of us for being U.S. citizens, but there's like not too much I can do about that. I don't have like an easy other option of what I would do if I renounced my U.S. citizenship, but it's like a choice to retain Israeli citizenship. Everybody, please. This doesn't grow us at all. You know, I would love to have conversations with you or anyone anytime about my positions on anything. And I think that's really the approach and the line that we ought to take. You know, as far as me and my citizenship, you know, I'll point out that I am a signatory to the Boycott from Within, which is a movement on the part of Jews and, and Palestinian citizens of Israel to express that even though they are citizens of the country, they do not support what the government is doing to the Palestinian people. And it's a very bold move on their part because they've been called out by Netanyahu, that great war criminal, and 
commonly called national disgrace, which to me I consider to be a compliment. You know, I held a meeting about a year ago with the head of Hadash, uh, with the campaign manager for Hadash Ta'al, uh, the two parties that are predominantly Palestinian citizens of Israel working to fight for Palestinian rights. So I have walked the walk and talked the talk, and I would love to talk to you anytime, Mr. Rowe, about that. You have my number, we can have those conversations. I think it's important to have those kinds of unifying conversations and to do that instead of at hominem because that just creates more heat than light. Uh, for the sake of brevity, I will say, uh, you know, uh, as far as I know, we're spending about $5 million a year in Israel, at sending that much a day in aid to Israel while they have uh, a universal health care system and, and legal marijuana. Uh, and they also prosecute over 300 children in military tribunals every year. Uh, so basically, I, I, I agree that we need to defund uh, a lot of the... Uh, countries who, who we've been propping up, not only Israel, but a lot of these other countries that we've been propping up and, and providing them uh, a ways to support themselves when they, they're obviously human rights violators. Economic sanctions is a form of warfare under international law, and I'm mostly opposed to it. But there are times when it needs to be done. And this is one of those times. I support BDS because the Palestinian movement has called for it. The other time I did, I was very involved in the anti-apartheid movement back in the 1970s and 80s. And that was effective because when we finally got over Reagan's veto sanctions against South Africa, the white power structure said, we value our business more than we do our racism. And they decided they had to make a deal with Mandela and Africa. I think we can do the same thing in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. That's a movement, it's a call for BDS, comes from the Palestinian BDS movement. And what they're saying now, I, I agree with it, I think we should do it in an escalating fashion. Put some sanctions on and tell Israel, you're not just going to do anything you want to have our support. We're going to be neutral now, and we believe in the Palestinians having their rights, everybody having their rights in that region. And if you don't move, we'll impose more. But the Palestinian National BDS movement saying, cut the military in on. That's the most important thing right now. I think that's the first step. Now, what comes out of a real negotiating process, one state, two state, I think is up to them. I think it's presumptuous for us to say what the answer should be, although I will observe that the possibilities of a two-state solution are being destroyed by the continuing expansion of the settlements in the West Bank and the continuing rule by Israel of these racist right-wing governments that Netanyahu is representing. And that's just making it more and more difficult. So we got to undermine the power of BDS. And, you know, the kind of thing that Dario belongs to in Israel, we got to support those, you know, cross-Israeli-Palestinian initiatives for peace. Because it was stronger 20 years ago and 30 years ago. And because the U.S. has given a blank check to the right-wing in Israel, it's undermined that within Israel, and that's a problem. So we can play a positive role, and I think BDS is part of it.
that it was inspired by anti-apartheid to do this. This is 15 years of struggle I'm proud to be a part of. Palestinians deserve to be treated as human beings. So I concur. Can you repeat the question? The, the party's position on boycott, divest, sanction of Israel is to support it. What's your position on that? Okay. When you first asked the question, you didn't say Israel, I don't think. Well, that's, that's BDS is generally geared towards Israel. Okay. So mine is just generally about sanctions. And uh, my understanding is I have some friends who uh, are uh, Iranian. And uh, they tell me that sanctions only hurt the little guy. They don't do anything to the government, really. And um, so, you know, we can put sanctions on everybody, but it doesn't help. The only thing that helps is leadership and uh, negotiation and uh, peace talks, you know. Sanctions, it just doesn't work. So we can leave or we have to let them alone, you know, to have their own problems and make their own issues with their neighbors. But uh, to really do sanctions, it doesn't help. something here called the Federal Reserve and people think it's federal and that there's reserves and it turns out it's really not it's a private banking system and there are no reserves other than the uh, they have a printing press and they keep they have a bunch of ink in reserve and they go ahead and they use it at will so should we go ahead and abolish the Federal Reserve and replace it with a public money system and let's uh, go into more, a little more details to that question as to what your beliefs are that seems to be a consensus question. Uh, well, I'm not a, a big expert on this this question, but I, I you know I know about I know some about it, and I I do support abolishing the Federal Reserve and replacing it with um, with public money. So that's it. Uh, I do agree that we have to abolish the Federal Reserve. Uh, one of the most boring classes that I took when I was uh, getting my bachelor's degree in uh, technical and applied studies focusing on business administration and communications was a money and banking class. And if you don't think money and banking is boring, you try taking it at 8 o'clock in the morning for one hour, four days a week. Uh, what I learned in that, ba that banking class was uh, more than enlightening. It, it told me that basically we are creating money from debt, and that is not a cycle that we can sustain, especially when the, the people who could least afford it are paying the most amount to it. Uh, the financial collapse in 2008 was based on predatory lending to people who couldn't afford uh, balloon payments on houses, especially these economically disenfranchised communities that have been long taken advantage of by banks. While banks can borrow at 0%, you and I, the lowest uh, interest rate we can expect is 16%. That's, that's just genuinely, especially when income is not increasing to that inflationary rate, and there's more billionaires now than there ever have been because of this uh, runaway system where banks are loaning money to other banks at 0% interest. Absolutely, the Federal Reserve needs to be abolished, and we need to have our government take control of our money again. Yay. Yeah, I, I strongly support our monetary reform proposal. There are only two parties in the world that are for it. Yes. 
Green Party of the United States and the Green Party of England and Wales. And this is really a radical thing. What it does is we give it to the Fed, we have a monetary authority in the Treasury Department that issues greenbacks. This was a demand of the populist movement, the Greenback Labor Party and the People's Party, in a little different context, and we spend it into the economy through the federal budget. It's not debt-linked money. What we do now is we want to borrow money, we have a treasury issue treasury securities, Wall Street buys them up, and then we gotta pay them back with interest. And what that does is crowd out public spending. About 20% of our federal budget right now is debt uh, service, and it crowds out private spending. So this is, you know, has a lot of economic benefit. And you know, debt matters because this overhang Wall Street is like getting free money. The financial oligarchy is getting rich because when the government needs money, they gotta go to Wall Street. You know what, Wall Street can veto government policy. Remember when Clinton became president, he had a modest reform program. Middle class tax cuts, a little money in education, a little infrastructure. And Robert Rubin from Goldman Sachs, the transition guy said, you can't do that because the bond market don't want, they want austerity. And uh, Clinton famously said, you mean to tell me I can't implement my reform program and get reelected because, because of a bunch of effing bond traders? Yeah, that's how the financial oligarchy's got us by the, you know what's. Uh, another example, Kucinich, got a boy Mayor of Cleveland. He's, he got elected promising not to privatize our municipal utility. The banker said, he kept his promise. Banker said, you can't do that, we're not, we're cutting off your line of credit, $13 million a year. You need a line of credit because the property taxes come in quarterly, the payrolls every week, force them into bankruptcy. That's how the capitalists, they don't have to buy politicians and lobby, they got economic power that translates into political power. This monetary money as a public utility really undercuts their power. It is radical. We should do it. This is what I agree with how we are. It's, it's just crazy. Green, this policy has the, the ability to move us into the limelight. Let's do it. For me, it's unconstitutional, and we need green system change based on what? Ecological economics. This, I'm with you on that one, Howie. Yeah. Okay, so I, I have to admit, I haven't really thought much about this uh, topic, but I suppose for me, I, I would ideally like to move away from money entirely and uh, work on some sort of barter system, or I don't know. I would need a team of people to come up with an idea there. I don't think this is an idea that the US or any country is quite possibly ready for right now. This might be something, you know, in the 25 years or, or 50 years from now. I think we need to become united as the United States and uh, find a, a way to take care of the people who are poor first and bring everybody up together to the same level. And then we can move out to the world and uh, unite the world also as one humanity. Hey. And, uh, and then I think we might be able to move away from money. But uh, for right now, I don't think we can do a lot of changes. Although it seems that Howie and Simone <laughs> <laughs> have a good idea, or uh, so I don't know. There, there are multiple possibilities here. Thanks. Now this 
issue, this issue of control of our monetary system is a very important one and one that many people gloss over and are not aware of the dynamics of. Absolutely, we need to have a national monetary authority that is answerable to the people in a democratic sense. And we need to end the bank's control over our monetary system. We call this the greening of the dollar, which is an excellent title. But what it really represents is the fact that when we get that democratic control of our monetary system, we can then also, we can also fuel the many aims that we have as a party and as a people. We all want to see resources devoted to education. We want to see resources devoted to peace building and demilitarization. We also want to see resources devoted to building stronger communities. And towards that end, I have to tie this issue to a need that we have as a country for public banking in general, for wrestling away control from these corporate interests that basically shut people out of power financially. And that leads to things such as redlining, which is, of course, still a thing across this country, if you have not heard. Despite the Community Reinvestment Act of the Carter era, 60 metro areas still have redlining to a degree that's similar to what we had at the beginning of the 20th century. They have gotten around it, folks. The banking and lending industry have gotten around it, and they're still racially drawing lines in neighborhoods and in terms of lending and in terms of the ability to create businesses. So we need to fight that discrimination of banking and lending, and part of how we do that is through public lending. And we also need to invest in community cooperatives who are newly regained democratic control over our economy and our financial system. We need to invest in those cooperatives so that we can build stronger communities and we need to invest in efforts that fuel communities separate and apart from this corporatist capitalist structure. For instance, we have this tussle with agribusiness right now that's squeezing out farmers. We say that we support organic farming. We need to support in terms of the structure of our economy, co-ops for farming, and farming, organic farming that is separate from the massive control of the agribusiness industry, the strangling farming across this country. Another question. Okay. Now, I'm going to take you back a few decades to the Cold War. Now, we know the Cold War is over, but when we still had the Cold War, Eastern Europe was basically the Iron Curtain, and it was communist control. Now, Cold War is done. Should the people of Eastern Europe be recognized <coughs> as an ethnic minority? And by that, I mean there's the Slavic states. Eastern Europe is different, different than Western Europe. So what should be the, uh, should they be recognized as an ethnic minority based on their history of oppression within their own countries? This will be our last question, by the way. We'll try to make this uh, one minute. Okay. We're kind of uh, short on time. I, I support human rights and, and treating people equal no matter where they're from. Unfortunately, uh, people take opportunities to uh, notice differences between us, uh, you know, shorter hair, longer hair, different colored skin, different type of hair, and use that as, as an excuse to, to treat the people as other or different. Uh, certainly if, if it engenders a, a, a more humanistic approach of treating people equally, then certainly we can, we can treat them as minorities, but um, the, the history of the planet is that everybody's an immigrant, Everybody is from someplace else. Even a lot of the people who are, are indigenous came from someplace else too, but they've been there for centuries, uh, thousands of years. So I believe that you know basic human bill of rights that was outlined by the UN needs to be respected for all cultures and all people. 
and that uh, we need to start treating people with more respect. Uh, hence the uh, key value of respect for diversity. Well, I'm, I'm against ethno-nationalism. I think the nation state is a disease of capitalism. Borders are set up to divide the working class so they can be divided and conquered. Look at our border with Mexico. They're like what they call in South Africa a Mantisman, or what they're doing to the Palestinians in Israel Palestine. Low-wage areas that are used as a threat to workers here, and if we don't capitulate to demands to lower our wages, the people who make more they move to shop over the border. And so we need to be against this. We should be for multicultural democracy everywhere. I'm a socialist, I'm an internationalist, I'm a solidarity, everybody's fighting for their human rights under any kind of regime. And I think that's where we should stand for multicultural democracy. And if Slavs are oppressed, we're with the Slavs. If they're oppressing, we're against those Slavs that are doing the oppressing. Same with every other group. Thank you. We, as a human family, have a solid history of referendums and initiatives it's people's right to choose what they want to be. In Ghana, where I've been connected to for 31 years, this yesterday, the 6th, they celebrated 63 years of democracy. There's, one of, there's over 100 ethnic groups in Ghana, West Africa. When they were doing, like, becoming liberated, they voted to see if they wanted to join. It's every ethnic group's right to determine where and how they want to fit into any construct. I believe in self-determination and sovereignty for all people. With the advent of the internet and uh, the world becoming smaller and smaller, I think borders are becoming less and less important. But uh, I think as a people, you still need roots and you still need an identity. And so to say that you're from a region, it's important. And uh, we want to all belong to something. But I think the borders are no longer uh, so necessary as they once were, perhaps, you know, a thousand years ago, when things were, you know, cut up in different ways. So, um, yeah, I, I, um, I, I see us coming together as one world. And the internet's helping, and I think the UN is helping, and the United States is also helping, too, and the Green Party as well, as we go around the world. So, anyways. Thank you. And the United Nations. Yes, thank you. I believe very strongly that all cultures, their histories, their struggles, their adversities should be recognized. And a big step towards that is better understanding the histories and the struggles of the many peoples that make up this country and this planet. One of the focal points for me in education is ensuring that we have a strong education for our children in the diverse histories of the people of this country and in the world. World history and the histories of the diverse people that make up this country is very often neglected in our educational system. It makes a very small part of the educational experience. So I think education is a long way towards that. And the goal is ultimately to build a, build a world where everyone has an equal place at the table in building peace for a global community. And when we're seeking equity and equality, there's by the definition, there is no exclusive circle. All must be welcome and all must have an equal place. Um, I'm a member of the U.S. Friends of the 
the Soviet People, which is an organization that is for restoring socialism in Russia and the other former Soviet republics and, and the Warsaw Pact countries and other, um, other formerly socialist and communist countries in Eastern Europe. And um, I, you know, it's very clear that, that um, Eastern Europe and Russia have been the target of Western European imperialist war for for centuries, and this is still going on. All this RussiaGate stuff is because the U.S. wants to wants to keep trying to to um, exert imperial control over Russia. That's part of the war on Syria too, because Syria is allied with Russia, and they were allied with the Soviet Union when the U.S. started the war against Syria. So I I think so I I agree that that Eastern Europe is threatened by imperialism and we need to stand, I need to stand up in, in defense of Eastern Europe against US imperialism. But here, when, when Eastern Europeans and Slavs come to the United States, they're, they're, they assimilate as white people and they're not a minority, an oppressed minority here. Time for closing statements. Howard, it's a better start. How long? How long do we speak? Um, closing statements are two minutes. two minutes. Okay, I didn't know I had a closing statement. So, <laughs> let me think on my feet. <laughs> Good question. Yeah, well, as I said at the beginning, our, my campaign has two major goals. One is to build the Green Party in order to get our demands into the national debate. So, building the Green Party. Getting on the ballot, it's getting the matching funds so we can support petitioners to get on the ballot. And then it means if we can muster it, we'd like to do regional organizing workshops where people can learn election campaigning. There's things, there are ways to do that, identify supporters, get lists, get them out on election day, um, and other things about doing media work and so forth. For example, I go around with a lot of locals and you know they want to come speak, and I say, Well, can you? put out a news advisory to the media. And they say, oh, the media don't cover us, we don't have a list. No, we gotta be able to relate to the media. So we wanna do that, and then maybe the other day talk about the organizing as opposed to just being active, as I was talking about earlier. And, you know, develop ourselves as a Green Party. So that's, and then I think that's the basis on which we build our base among working class, youth, and people of color. Uh, and then the issues we gotta put in there. Look, the Green Deal is about dealing with a climate crisis, and inequality crisis. I don't need to preach about the uh, climate crisis here. I've got a long, long budget detail on my website you can look up. Inequality crisis, inequality killed. We've got a 20 year life expectancy gap between our rich and poorest counties. Average life expectancies are declining. So we need an economic bill of rights. Roosevelt brought that up in World War II in the last two state union addresses. Asked Congress to enact it. None of those programs were enacted. One of them is Medicare for All. Uh, a job guarantee, an income above poverty. It was picked up by the Civil Rights Movement, the March on Washington in 63, the Freedom Budget and King's Poor People's Campaign, and it got dropped. The problem was they all relied on the Democrats to do it. The Green Party's got to pick up that torch and get it done in a lot of time, but I filled up two minutes. Thank you, and it was, I, I ask you for your vote in your process, thank you. 
Uh, I'm Dennis Lambert, and I'm running for president. Uh, appreciate uh, nobody's throwing tomatoes at all in here. Uh, sometimes it feels like you're preaching to the choir because we have a lot of similarities in these groups. Um, as I said, you know, I have a four-part platform of ending all wars, $25-hour minimum wage, renewable infrastructure investment program. Sometimes you can't say it too fast. And, and ending all wars. So that's very basic. And as I said, you know, I want to encourage as many people to run for office, especially Greens, because we can be the, the future of our country. We can bring a lot of people to our table because we have a lot of ideas that people appreciate and will like. Uh, to wit, I have been writing a book on, on my last uh, three runs, and I'll be adding a few chapters about this run to help educate people on how to run for office on their own. I want you to know that I appreciate everybody who's come out here today and is politically active. I want to see a lot more younger faces in these crowds now. I want to see a lot more color diversity as well. Uh, lastly, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I got a gal. In there we go. We all know that. Thank song. you, folks. <laughs> um, I'm briefly going to go back to the Federal Reserve question since I got that first and hadn't thought of what to say. I think the important part is like which class of people control the government that controls the, the monetary and financial policy. So in, in the United States in 2007 when there was the, the big financial crisis and like real estate collapse, etc., the, the Obama regime, the Democratic Party, like gave trillions of dollars in bailouts to, to banks and not to people, not to regular people who had their homes foreclosed. Whereas in China, where the government is controlled by, by a communist party that's like controlled by the people, the government there like spent trillions of dollars on infrastructure programs in, in like um, in like undeveloped parts of the country that like really really helped people rather than helping out banks. So that's that's the important thing is who is in charge. And and then I wanted to go back to the um the the um, anti-war stuff and opposing regime change wars. So, so Howie, Howie and Dennis, they say they're against regime change wars, but um, Howie Hawkins um, has supported the regime change campaign against Syria and the so-called revolution of like far right-wing um, people who are supported by the US and its allies. And he's also spoken in, in support of the protests in Hong Kong, which are organized by the CIA that feature people waving like US and UK flags asking for Hong Kong to be recolonized. And Dennis has told me that he, he thinks the US um, troops in Yugoslavia in the 90s and in other countries have, have like played a positive stabilizing role. So I don't, I don't think the other candidates understand that that the U.S. can't be the solution by like by being the promoter of peace. We need to give everyone self determination around the world. Okay, give it back to Howie so we can respond. Sure. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to show that because we're already now on the courts. Hang on, hang on, hang on. They're gonna. Let's move on. No, they're gonna go. You can't attack someone and not let the person. I didn't attack. I just pointed out a difference. That's not an attack. I'm the one that's moderating the questions and Howie gets to talk. Period.
I have never called for U.S. military intervention in Syria. I didn't say you did. <laughs> so you're criticizing me for criticizing Assad. You're, su you're supporting a phony revolution that the U.S. is supporting that is not, that is a phony revolution against a progressive government. And that's a fact, so there's nothing to defend here. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's not true. There was an Arab Spring, people rose up, they wanted democratic rights. No, I know a guy named Fossil Shahadi from the Masters, a Christian. He did a film on why the revolution in Syria should be not violent. Interviewed Noam Chomsky, Eric Chomsky. And after he spent a semester at Syracuse University, I met him at Occupy Syracuse, he went back to film the revolution and advocate for nonviolence. And he was killed in a mortar attack by Assad's forces. He was part of, he was a revolutionary. You're telling me a man I knew that was killed didn't exist. I'm telling you, there was, I, my take on Syria was there was a popular uprising for democracy. And there were two counter revolutions from the Assad regime and from the jihadis. And that's where the U.S. was counter revolutionary because they backed. The jihadis brought in there by Syria, I'm sorry, Saudis and Turkey. Yeah, okay, well, there's a lot of fake news out here, but that's my response. And Dennis, you got a tattoo. But we get a right to defend ourselves, don't we? Yeah. David brought up Howie and Dennis, so each one of them has a chance to give a little quick rebuttal, and then we'll move down to Daria. I can be brief. Let the man speak, please. Uh, ethnic cleansing and uh, Suhair Atasi in 2011. Research. Dario. Folks, because I feel we need it here because of the energy in this space, I just want to say on a positive note how much I respect and admire everyone who is up here as a candidate today. You all bring something special to the table, even though we don't all agree on everything. So a round of applause for everyone for being here. I want, I want you to remember about my campaign, our comprehensive approach to the Green New Deal, our green path forward. I want you to remember that not just renewable energy, but also dealing with dealing with the crisis with overproduction of livestock and the effect on climate change and dealing with plastic pollution is an important focus for us because we want to deal with every facet that endangers our planet. I want you to remember our campaign for its focus on a responsive living wage in addition to what we share in common and our guarantees of employment and housing and health care. I want you to remember our People of Color Bill of Rights and our focus on the ways in which people have been shut out of our system, including but not limited to the fact that there's a debt unpaid to descendants of enslaved blacks in this country. Reparations, 
We must have reparations, banking and lending, the inequalities in that system, and a police brutality. We must have community control of policing. I want you to remember we are an anti-war and pro-truth campaign. We want to end the military-industrial complex, but we also want to ensure that we have democratization of ideas so that people can freely judge for themselves whether governments are acting justly in their name. Now, what are our challenges in 2020? We have challenges in terms of the drumbeat of people saying you must vote, you must vote in a way that defeats the orange menace. Well, folks, the way that people have been suggesting that you do that is only feeding into the lesser of two evils ideology in which the lesser evil and the greater evil just get more evil. We are the true choice, and we must emphasize that. We must be a strong voice for the experience of all Americans, and I feel like my experience and our campaign provides that. And we must also use this time to build up green communities across this country so that we have a focus on 2020 and beyond. And our campaign's focus on the hashtag C Greens lead effort to encourage new green candidacies across this country is aiming to do that. So I thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your support. And consider donating at DarylHunter.com and also learn more about our campaign on our website. So I'm Susan Bookster Mahaki, and that's a hyphen between the Bookster Mahaki. And I want to read you something. It's one of these uh, affirmations or sort of a, a poem that I like to read from time to time. It's, it gives me inspiration. It's called, I Am Only One. I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. This is from Edward Everett Hale. Uh, he's a Unitarian Universalist writer and um, poet uh, and free American. But for me, um, I tried to go around the country, like I said, in 28 states, and talk about the Green Party and talk about my campaign and hear what people in America need, you know? But when I take my card and I said I'm with the Green Party, and then they go to the Green Party website, they don't see my name. Because I'm not one of the official president uh, candidates. So what I need from everybody in this room, if you have not already given out your four signatures for the presidential candidates, please consider me for one of them. And there are some other people at this table, too, who also need signatures so that we could be officially considered candidates and our name would be then on the front page of the Green Party website. That would be helpful. Thank you very much. Thanks for your support. Have a good day. It's about leadership and management in 2020. Leadership for our party means doing the dirty work. Having meetings, have answering emails, building together management, organizing trips, debates. Our campaign has been the only one doing that. You can't just leave it up to folks. You've got to know what it takes at the national level to push our party forward. Talk is cheap. Action has spoke louder than words. Uh, David mentioned the national black political agenda on self-determination. Again, when we look around, we see two, three of us here, I think. This is how you grow it. The next one, our campaign is the only campaign that actually had an open book read and will be doing it again and encouraging everybody to become what? Anti-racist. 
The other thing we've done that no one else has done, Rita was involved with us, we authentic greens. We had an open conversation that is now folded into Solutions Roundtable that everybody's a part of. Talk does not solve anything. Talk does not solve anything unless you actually join in and make it happen and won't. Green positioning system. That's a system our campaign started in February where we gave to everybody. How do we build our party for the long run? So voter identified issues for each demographic, we've come up with that. That can lead whoever wins the nomination forward, but you gotta be involved. Also training. I am willing to show up and help train anybody how to listen, how to facilitate, and how to get folks to join our party. We don't have a critical mass, so some of the conflict is normal, because when you have a better mass of people, some of our nutty parts kind of fade away. And it's just, it's 15 to 18%. The other thing is, my song, oh, the other thing, our campaign started the Shirley Chisholm Political Leadership. This goes beyond this. We're going to only recruit women, I can't see it, it's it's okay. and people of color. So we've done that. Our actions are measurable. We can stand up against anybody here. Three seconds, what is it? Paint, Paint the, the White, White House green. green, just one. Paint. The White House Green, Sudanam 2020. Thank you, y'all. <laughs> okay, I don't know. Thank you so much for having us, guys. I'd like to thank the six of you for coming here today. It's really a wonderful time. Six very enthusiastic candidates, and that's a blessing. <laughs> and a lot of third parties don't have what we have. And not only do we have uh, six very enthusiastic candidates, we have six candidates that will share in basic similarities, also share enough differences to give everybody the every, everybody should want to go ahead and learn more about these six people so they can make an educated choice when they go ahead and vote. So it's really, really a blessing to have all six of you here today. Thanks for coming and stick around for a while. You might have some more questions. We did get to, we had some other questions we couldn't get to, so somebody might pull you to the side and say they want to talk for a few seconds. Can you list them so, and then we can just